standing there looking at my tape recorder. <laughs> and I'm saying, Pete, what do you recommend the kids do instead of being nuked by this React? He says, I think they should get a bunch of tools, and uh, in no time they can build together a solar collector, and we'll be all set and ready to go. Yeah, well. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna have to leave it right there, Carl. This is amazing work. It's incredibly important work. You're gonna have to come back and talk to us again about Cold War Long Island, my neighborhood where I grew up, Levittown, the Levittown pool, running around barefooted. I didn't know that I was a, a few inches away from a, a nuclear uh, uh, explosion. Well, <laughs> anyway, and, 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 uh, and also about Levittown. We, this is detailed in the book. Only Caucasians were allowed to buy a house in Levitan. That's, Sheer racism. That's straight up. Got to go. Thank you. Uh, stay safe, Carl. Talk to you soon. You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Portland. My name is Baruch Avramovich. I am inviting you to a Russian show back from USSR on cable radio every other Sunday at 9 a.m. See you there. KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. Due to the temporary closure of in-station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Development and Events Committee meets on the fourth Monday of the month at 4.30 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Welcome to The Food Show, I'm Emily Becker. On today's show, we'll listen to a conversation with Raj Patel, Anna LaPay, and Bill McKibben about food, climate change, and combating climate anxiety. This conversation was presented by the Kent Memorial Library's Morris Lecture Series on September 9th. A big thank you to Kent Memorial Library for bringing these great thinkers together and for permission to air this slightly edited conversation on The Food Show. If you'd like to listen or watch the talk in its entirety, visit kboo.org slash foodshow. Bill McKibben is an author and founder of 350.org. 
Anna LaPay is an author and advocate for sustainability and justice in the food chain. Raj Patel is an author, filmmaker, and research professor at the University of Texas, Austin. The conversation begins with Raj Patel introducing Bill McKibben and Anna LaPay. I get to introduce two legends in the world of food and climate. Um, and uh, th these are people whose intellectual generosity is a, a matter of record, um, but whose personal generosity, decency, and kindness uh, are a gift to the world and reason to believe not only that we can end a conversation about climate change uh, with hope in our hearts, but that we will certainly do that uh, in, in a way that, that will move us towards action. I want to introduce first uh, Bill McKibben. Bill is an author and environmentalist who in 2014 was awarded the Right Livelihood Prize, which is somewhat sometimes called the Alternative Nobel. Uh, his 1989 book, The End of Nature, uh, is widely regarded as the first book for a general audience about climate change. Uh, and that book has appeared in 24 languages, and Bill has gone on to write a dozen more books since then, uh, each building on the, the majesty and uh, intellectual insight of uh, the end of nature. He is a founder of 350.org, the first planet-wide grassroots climate change movement, uh, which has organized 20,000 rallies around the world in every country save North Korea, uh, and spearheaded the resistance to the Keystone Pipeline and launched the fast-growing fossil fuel divestment movement. So Bill, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, Bill will be in conversation with Anna LaPay. Anna is a national best-selling author, a renowned advocate for sustainability and justice along the food chain, and an advisor to funders investing in food system transformation. Uh, she's also a James Beard Leadership Awardee, and uh, Anna is also the co-author co or author of three books on food, farming, and sustainability, and the contributing editor to 14 more. Her most recent solo book, Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Pork and What You Can Do About It, was named by Kirkus uh, as one of the best environmental books of the year. And just coming up, or it's around the corner, uh, is a 50th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, uh, to which she was a contributor, along with her mother, the original author of that book, Francis Moore LePay. Uh, so uh, Bill and Anna, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Raj. Good to be um, with you. The reason folk are joining us here uh, is because th they were induced to, to, to this conversation uh, by the idea that by the end of our talk, we would have offered solutions to, quote, combat climate anxiety and be better prepared for the future. Uh, and that, I think, is a great place to start because anxiety is uh, in the air. And I, I wonder whether we can treat that anxiety not as a natural phenomenon, but as something strange to be looked at and to be explained. Uh, and I, I wonder, uh, uh, perhaps, uh, Anna, if, if you could uh, lead us off. Why is anxiety in you know, a, a response to climate change, one that, that we're in some ways taught to experience? Uh, and why is it so widespread? Well, um, thanks again, Raj, for having us. And Bill, it's a pleasure to, to see you and be in conversation with you. And. You know, so I'm, I'm beaming in on Zoom to all of you from the San Francisco Bay Area, and we are coming up on almost the year anniversary of the day the sun did not come out. So for those of you who might have seen those images uh, or were here and experienced it, uh, you know, it was these incredibly intense wildfires, really uh, uh, that intense because of climate change, right? That blanketed our sky with smoke and we experienced a day that was cold and dark and the street lights stayed on and the sky was orange 
And if one hadn't felt climate anxiety before, and I think many of us already had, one really felt it that day. I'm a mom of two young kids, and they saw what they thought was like snow falling from the sky, and it was ash. And and that was, uh, for me, not the first time I felt anxiety, but certainly the deepest time I felt it. And I think what I, I think a lot of us even before that moment have come to realize is that part of what this moment calls on us to do is to uh, be able to live with the emotional complexity of this moment and to know that we do not have to stuff anxiety away. We don't have to pretend we're not feeling it. We don't have to get past it in order to move into action that we can live. We need to learn to live with that anxiety. And, and I feel like I let myself experience all the the elements of that anxiety from the like bedridden grief to the, okay, I'm gonna take this anxiety, use it as energy and have it fuel my activism. And I think all of those, that whole range, and there's more in there of how one experiences that emotion of anxiety is all understandable. And uh, and I, so I guess that's how I would begin this conversation is not that I would think that Bill or I or you Raj are going to somehow uh, uh, erase this anxiety from all of us by the time this hour is done but I would hope that uh, I uh, would hope I'd also get from you, Raj, and, and you, Bill, the ability to, to kind of deepen our ability to live with this anxiety and really learn how to channel it into positive action and energy. What a beautiful answer, Anna. Uh, Bill, so the same question to you. I mean, do, do you do you see? I mean, obviously, you've been you've been studying this for for, uh, for longer than we have, and you you've been sitting with this anxiety or sitting with the the, the sort of complex emotions of uh, seeing the world transform and also the uh, the, the seeming inability of uh, those in power to, to do anything about it. Uh, and I wonder if you could talk us through, you know, what, what, sorry, this anxiety. First of all, what a pleasure to be in conversation with both of you. And let's make clear that this is a three-way conversation that we're having. Raj knows way more about food than I ever will, and Anna too. Um, and and a lot about climate too. And anyone who uh, has any doubts should go look at his most recent movie, uh, whose is the ants and the grasshopper. Do I did I get the right? right oh, you got it right, Bill. Thank you. There you go. Uh, one of the best films about farming, maybe the my favorite documentary about farming that I've ever seen. Just a remarkable piece of work. Um, I'm the wrong person always to alleviate anybody's anxiety. <laughs> you know, my job in the world is essentially a professional bummer-outer of people, um, uh, you know, um, and, and this is a very difficult moment uh, for climate, especially as it relates to these questions of food, because the warnings that some of us have been offering for 30 years are now coming true. We had a poignant reminder a couple of hours ago when the National Weather Service declared that the summer that's just ending, meteorological summer is over now, uh, was the, beat, beat the summer, previous summer of 1936, the worst of the Dust Bowl summers is the hottest we've ever had in this country. And we know what the Dust Bowl meant in terms of food production. And we're seeing that now all over around the world. I mean, as we speak, there are huge shortfalls in grain production across Canada, across much of the Pacific Northwest, Washington State, which is third biggest producer of wheat in the country, across Kazakhstan, across Syria, across you know, almost any place you name around the world. It's not just uh, that, that supplies, you know, that production is down. 
uh, it's that our ability to move food around is dramatically reduced. Uh, the Paraná River in, um, in Argentina, where much of the world's soybean flows out, is uh, so drought depleted that cargoes are being reduced by 60%. Hurricane Ida took out the grain elevator along the Mississippi that handles 9% of the country's grain. Uh, you know, on and on and on and on and on. And the, the, the thing to bear in mind when thinking about this is, this is what happens when you raise the temperature one degree Celsius, and we're on a path unless we get our act together very fast to raise the temperature three degrees Celsius before uh, Anna is, you know, uh, old person like me. And, and um, if that happens, uh, she's not going to get to live in a civilization like the ones we're used to living in. That's just too much. So our our hope, our our uh, our, our only hope really, lies in somehow limiting the rise of that temperature. Not in stopping global warming. That's way off the list of menu items at the moment. Uh, but in holding it to a degree and a half or two degrees, which will be the biggest task humans have ever undertaken. And its payoff will mean a difficult century, perhaps not an utterly impossible one. But then, Bill, I mean, if we're um, struggling with, I mean, we're clearly in a, a position where we need strategies to get us out of here. And you know, I, I know you were just you just reminded me about what it was like here to live through the big freeze. Uh, I'm in I'm in Austin, Texas, and so. Um, you know, we we, uh, we became climate refugees. Um, we had to leave. You know, we were out with, uh, without power, and eventually we, we moved mainly because uh, you know we have an elder in the house who uh, was not able to uh, safely remain when the, the temperatures fell into the 40s in, indoors. Um, and you know, I mean, things were so bad that Ted Cruz actually left the state, and uh, that's that's not the kind of. I mean, obviously, you know, that, that's in some ways a wish, you know, a dream come true um, if if it were for, for longer. But but. You know, we need we need better strategies, and uh, and you know the, the the getting to this point is a is a history of trying things which often haven't worked, and so I, I wonder if we can already try to um, uh, you know identify what it is that perhaps has worked. So so Bill, maybe I'll, I'll bounce back to you and then go to Anna on this. But what strategies have you seen that have been successful in this moment? Strategies for for beginning climate change. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, th there's no huge mystery here. I mean, the problems caused mostly by burning coal and gas and oil. So you got to stop burning coal and gas and oil. <laughs> um, in fact, a, a reasonable mantra for planet Earth is stop burning things on the surface of the earth. Plant, you know, coal, gas, oil, wood, biomass, whatever you want to call it, and and instead rely on the fact that the good Lord put a large burning orb 93 million miles away that's perfectly capable of powering the solar panels and wind turbines that we now not only know how to use, but that our engineers and scientists over the last decade have reduced the cost of by an order of magnitude, making it the cheapest form of power on earth. There's no longer a technological or economic obstacle to progress. There's mostly a, a, an obstacle of vested interest and inertia. Uh, somehow we have to keep breaking the political power of the fossil fuel industry. And I'll add um, that I'm in a slightly 
uh, I hope they ended mood right at the moment because within the last hour has come news that it looks like the decade-long campaign to convince uh, Harvard University, of which I bet there's some alumni in the audience, to divest from fossil fuel has forced their capitulation. Um, it's one more good sign that we're doing what needs to be done. Our problem is not that we can't win this fight, it's that we may not win it in time. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, our, our, the world's climatologists, told us two years ago that if we haven't cut emissions in half by 2030, which is now eight years and change away, then we're never going to meet the targets we set in Paris with such optimism just six years ago. This is the last decade over which we have real leverage to change the outcome here. And it's why it's so such an emergency. Then, yeah, I mean, if, if the fossil fuel industry, which is, you know, 200 years old is bad, the food industry, which is, you know, 600 years old, uh, but actually, you know, maybe longer, is much worse. Uh, Anna, what, you know, I mean, th th this is a succubus on the face of the planet, and they've been burning things forever. Uh, what do we what do we do about them? Right, right. Well, I, you know, I think, Phil, you put it so well that this climate, climate change is not a, solving climate change is not a technical problem, it's a political one. And it's, uh, I was just reading a, a paper by a, a political science a professor at the University of Toronto who was talking about some strategies to deal with the climate crisis. And, and she put it as climate change is not a technical problem, it's a, a wealth inequality problem. And so I think kind of framing it from, we, we don't need to kind of be desperately searching for a technical fix, which again goes to actually that's a source of hope. We, we actually have the solutions available to us. That's an amazing gift. Um, to put this whole conversation about strategies uh, into the uh, kind of looking at the food systems and food systems impact, it's really important to understand, as Bill said, absolutely need to stop burning things on, on, uh, you know, on top of the earth. Uh, and we also really need to be looking at how we are growing food, what we are choosing to grow and what we do with it. So uh, the most recent data estimates that the food system globally, that's from seed to what goes on our plate to what ends up in the landfills, uh, it's responsible for about 37% of all greenhouse gas emissions. So while we are doing things like uh, tapping into solar and wind to really, really radically change where we get our energy sources, we also really need to be looking at how do you build a food system that isn't having such a big impact on the climate. Of that 37%, uh, about a third of that is coming from agribusiness-driven deforestation uh, or uh, development on peatland, which is incredibly carbon-rich. Uh, a little bit less, uh, or a little bit about a third also is coming from other kinds of production practices, including industrial livestock, which is highly carbon-intensive. And then the rest comes from other packaging production and so on. So what do we do? What are some strategies? Raj, that was your question. And I think what we can benefit from is looking at what has worked, what might hasn't maybe gone total to the scale we need, but what are some of those strategies that work? And number one, I think we can uh, tap into lessons learned across other sectors, not necessarily in the food sector, to defund the bad. So looking at how much the banking industry is financing the fossil fuel industry and financing industrial meat and calling on those banks to stop funding the bad stuff. We know we need to stop. Uh, so there was a, a report, Bank Track and Rainforest Action Network, on which on whose board I sit, just did a report that just in the last five years, the biggest 
60 banks put fin invested financially in the fossil fuel sector to the tune of $3.8 trillion just in the five, past five years. That is untenable. That has to stop. We have to put pressure on the banks. Number two, we can fund the good. We can call on uh, public institutions and uh, uh, private investors to support the kinds of food systems and energy systems that actually aren't going to contribute to the crisis. And third, I think, and we're again starting to see calls for this here in this country that are really ca catching on, which is we can shift power and really look at if climate change is an inequality problem, if so much of the of the problem is driven by such a small handful of corporations and wealthy individuals, how can we tax tax the rich, uh, tax that wealth? I was reading an article by a colleague, Carl Burkhart from uh, One Earth, uh, who uh, uh, reminds us that just 0.03% of the wealthiest people on the planet control $100 trillion in assets. And just taxing that 0.03% of people to the tune of just 1.5% of that $100 trillion in assets would underwrite the cost for the kind of energy transition we need, the kind of food system transformations we need. So I would underscore that while we need to look at, you know, what are these food system change we need to make, that we also can be looking at what are these strategies and solutions that we're already seeing from other parts of the climate movement and, uh, and be bold in our asks uh, with all, everything you've said, Bill, about how dire dire things are. I want to just underscore your what you were saying about banks, because I think that's one of the, the vulnerable and important links here. Uh, my last trip out before the pandemic lockdown was to go to jail in DC for um, uh, sitting in in the lobby of Chase Bank to launch the campaign against the single biggest of these. JP Morgan Chase by themselves has uh, given over about a quarter trillion dollars to the fossil fuel industry since the Paris Climate Accords. They didn't need Donald Trump to sabotage them. They were quite capable and happy to do it themselves. And that campaign is now picking right back up uh, as the whatever we're, I guess we're not post pandemic, but wherever the hell we are, we've got to get back to work. Uh, young people have uh, are announcing plans for a big focus on the banks in the course of this fall. And there'll be a lot of the rest of us to back them up because um, this is, you know, I mean, we fight, um, we fight the fossil fuel industry with things like divestment, which has become the biggest anti-corporate campaign in history. We're at $15 trillion in endowments and portfolios that have divested. Um, but the banks, in theory, should be easier. I mean, Exxon's obviously going to go to the wall for their business. It's the only thing they know how to do is dig stuff up and set it on fire. But you know, Chase makes a lot of money off the fossil fuel industry, but it's only six or seven percent of its deal book. You know, um, they could actually uh, take a little hit um, um, and develop some new lines of business. Similarly, uh, uh, you know, the most important thing going on for the next month in any of this is passing this uh, uh, 3.5 trillion dollar infrastructure bill. I was off around Vermont with. My old friend Bernie on Sunday, crisscrossing the state, giving speeches. He's been all across the Midwest uh, uh, trying to rouse support for what would be the first real action by Congress on climate change in the 30 years that we've known about this problem. And every corporation in the country is lined up to fight it. Uh, there was a story in the Washington Post last week that 
you know, all these companies that have been running ads about how much they care about the climate and things, Apple, Walmart, uh, FedEx, Lowe's, whatever, they're all, because it would raise the corporate tax rate a couple of points, they're all quite willing to, to bring on the apocalypse. So, you know, we're really at a decision point right now. So here we are at this decision point. We've got all this data that suggests that we can target and we should target the banks, uh, that they are vulnerable, that there are uh, you know, crimes against the climate uh, for which they, they can and should be held accountable. And yet this is still a huge push, right? We're, we're, we're up against a, a series of institutions, not just banks themselves, uh, but perhaps also social institutions. I mean, you, you mentioned inequality, Anna. Um, and I, I wonder whether in thinking about how it is that we mobilize for the infrastructure bill and mobilize beyond it, uh, that there are some enemies ranged against us that, that might lurk uh, not, not just on Wall Street. Because I mean, and it's easy to point to um, you know the, the the hedge funds and uh, and even the pension funds and their um, you know their sort of troves of, uh, of, of of sort of investment capital and you know BlackRock can greenwash all they like, uh, but you know I, I wonder whether there's there are other institutions that you can identify for us that we need to be taking on uh, you know, beyond just the sort of structures uh, of, of financial accumulation in Wall Street. Um, and Bill, why, why, why don't you start? It's, it's not enough that we take on uh, uh, all of global <laughs> it's, it's demand just not, it's just not. in the fossil fuel industry. Well, no, but I, but I'm, I mean, the, 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 the question here is, look, I mean, what, what do you want me to do? Write to my senator? That's not going to work. Yes. No, yeah. I want you to, uh, so, so for instance, we're, um, you know, uh, uh, we've just formed this or announced sort of the beginning of the formation of this new um, organization, thirdact.org, that's going to be organizing people like me over the age of 60. Uh, and our one of first campaigns is going to be directly about these banks and climate change. Uh, we need to back up the young people working on this because, you know, if there's a bunch of 19-year-olds outside the bank, that's good and effective and will uh, toss a little bit of fear into them. And if there's a bunch of 69-year-olds uh, who have uh, lots of money in that bank, um, well, that adds to the pressure in significant ways. Um, so there's no, there's no shortcut around mobilization here. I mean, uh, getting people in the streets, getting people uh, uh, engaged politically, there's only, I mean, look, if we had you know, all discussion about climate change is in the end a discussion about physics. And, and if we had 50 years to deal with this problem, then we'd have a whole other suite of options in, you know, that we could be following. Um, um, but we don't. We have eight years, as I said. And that means that we're past the point where we're going to solve this one Tesla at a time, one vegan dinner at a time. Useful as those things are and nice as they are, uh, they don't add up quickly enough. Uh, so we need to be looking for ways to multiply, not add. We need to be looking for leverage wherever we can find it. And there's only two levers big enough to pull that matter. One's political action, so in this country that means Washington, and the other is financial action, so in this country that means Wall Street. And my sense of Ken Connecticut is it's a little more closely tied to Wall Street than it is to, to uh, Washington, though tied heavily to both. So, uh, uh, you know, the time to be making this argument very strongly about 
um, uh, how it is that you know the role that uh, money is playing in driving the kind of um, um, uh, you know this sort of suicide pact that we've entered into here. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, I mean the, the s same question to you, Anna. Yeah, well, I, I I really agree with everything Bill said, and I think what was coming up for me as you were talking, Bill, is that you know part of what I think also we need to be doing and doing a better job of and continuing to do is to help people understand uh, that uh, that there can be kind of multiple targets at once, and to help people see. I mean, just bringing this back to food, which is the lens through which I'm 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 looking at crime at the moment is to also help people see that so often food is seen as separate from the fossil fuel industry. Uh, they, and, and the food industry uh, uh, is perfectly happy to sort of not be part of the climate conversation. And when I wrote Diet for Hot Planet now, which is you know, many years ago, and Bill, you graciously wrote uh, the introduction to it, uh, you know, there was very little conversation of the food and climate intersection, very little conversation that was putting the crosshairs of climate activism on agribusiness, for instance, or helping people understand that, oh, wait a second, pesticides are a petrochemical and they are, as Sanders Steingraber would say, you know, another branch of the fossil fuel tree. And wait a second, oh, fertilizer production increasingly in the U.S. is being fueled by frack gas. And wait a second, the whole boom in fracking is there's this whole tie-in to uh, major investments in new synthetic fertilizer plants. Wait a second, we are really talking about one and the same thing here. So I think there's this kind of education we can help people do to, to not let uh, these uh, industries within the food system off the hook, to put them into the conversation, and at the very same time, not fall for the same kind of public relations spin tactics we've seen from the oil industry to try to now that you're part now that you have the you know crosshairs on you oh, now you're going to say oh well we're part of the solution like I just saw maybe you saw this too Bill I just saw Chevron's big bright announcement about how they are going green in this partnership with Cal Biogas a uh, industrial dairy operator across the state of California they are now going to take all of that methane waste from those dairy farms and turn it into a perfectly green renewable gas and isn't Chevron wonderful for doing so. So we have to be really careful and we have to really keep educating ourselves uh, uh, about uh, these interconnections and the patterns we're seeing in messaging and storytelling that as these industries are starting to be seen as really what they are, which is part of the problem and absolutely uh, influencing the political landscape, that we really need to keep you know, mobilizing and educating ourselves to make sure that we don't let them off the hook and we don't fall for that greenwashing. You're listening to a conversation on climate and the future of food with Anna LaPay, Bill McKibben, and Raj Patel on The Food Show. I love it that both of you have, have talked about the, the mobilizing that's necessary for us to be able to have these multiple targets because it's you know, often, uh, you know, in, in the climate change discussions, as, as you say, Bill, it's like, well, you know, jump in a Tesla, uh, reduce your carbon footprint as, as much as you're able, and away you go. And this is clearly a political mobilization problem. And, and, and I'm wondering whether y'all might be able to just speak to the, the sort of possible synergies that, that might exist between the climate movement and the food movement here. Um, I mean, Anna, you, you mentioned a couple, but I, I wonder if, if you might be able to T tell us a little bit more about how it is that food and climate conversations, which do seem fairly siloed, might be more, uh, might be better integrated. Yeah, well, uh, and um, 
you know, I think yes, siloed to a certain extent, but I have seen so much change in a decade in terms of those these conversations and really so much cross-organizing across different issue areas, including food and climate. Uh, and I will say there's so many reasons why uh, having a kind of holistic and systems view on the solutions we need to push for is so import important. And one of them is that if we fail to do that, we will be playing fossil fuel whack-a-mole. You know, if we fail to take on the industry in all of its many branches, again, that Sanders die grabber tree, then we will be playing whack-a-mole. So for instance, uh, a couple years ago, the Center for International Environmental Law published a report called Fueling Plastics that looked at the fossil fuel industry's trajectory to move into plastics production and their lobbying against really progressive uh, plastics bans and plastics regulation across the continent of Africa as part of their opening up their that market to plastics. And essentially the message was, look, we have to, we have to take on this industry or there will be this huge new market growth for the fossil fuel industry. And we're seeing similar questions being raised about the expansion of synthetic fertilizer production and pesticides, again, as this way for the fossil fuel industry to shape shift into different markets. Um, I will say to your question, Raj, about, you know, are these conversations happening in silos or not? Is there cross-organizing? So when I reported Diet for a Hot Planet about 12, 13 years ago, that was trying to help people see that food is part of the climate crisis, part of the food system is part of driving it, but also farmers and agroecology and different food production systems are key to climate resiliency. I was struck at the time that there was not a single large to mid-size uh, environmental organization in the United States working on an agribusiness slash climate campaign except for Rainforest Action Network, which was when I joined the board of RAN. They had followed the money and they saw that agribusiness was making a big play into the rainforest in South America and they had a big agribusiness campaign as a result. Today, and Bill, I'm curious if you, if you would agree with this, but you know, I feel like almost every environmental organization is weaving into their advocacy some elements around talking about food systems and food production and, and needing to really um, build power among food producers. And I would say similarly, in the political landscape, we're seeing conversations about food and farming at the national level that connects to understanding that food policy is climate policy in a way that we haven't seen for a long time now. Is that, uh, you know, it, it sort of, has that battle been won? Absolutely not. You know, we have to really keep working to make sure that that food policy is actually going to uh, move the needle forward and, and help us uh, meet our climate goals. But I would say the conversation has really changed in the past 10, 12 years. And, and has it changed fast enough? No. Do we need to keep changing it? Yes. But has it stayed stagnant? Absolutely not. And I think it's, I think one of the things that's helped in the fossil fuel fight has been a much clearer sense of who the problem, where the problem lies. That is, you know, for years, the oil companies did their best to kind of tell us that it was our carbon footprint until finally through things like the fight over the Keystone Pipeline or divestment or things, we really were able to start naming Exxon and Chevron and BP. Well, in the world of uh, uh, food policy, I mean, the people who write the farm bill in the US every year are Cargill and ADM. They're the Exxon and Chevron of, of food, you know? And there's other players too, you know, the Purdue's of the world or the meat packers or whoever. But these guys are have the same kind of political reach, the same kind of political power. 
Um, we don't, they're smart enough not to have, you know, their names on signs along, you know, outlets on every highway. So they're not quite like Exxon and Chevron in our consciousness, but we need to take them on. And, and one of the ways to do that is the uh, food bill, the farm bill, as it's called, that comes up every couple of years in Congress. And it's always a vehicle just for deploying more absurd subsidies precisely to these guys. And, and so uh, sooner or later, we have to make that farm bill into a food bill and start using it to uh, uh, help uh, 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 support better forms of agriculture, all of which are better for farmers, uh, you know, actual farmers, people who grow food, whose lives are, are, are difficult because of the um, um, corporate, you know, monopolies across this industry, um, and all of which are, are possible. You know, the French six years ago passed a law right around the time of the Paris Climate Accords, uh, rewarding farmers who were able to increase the carbon content in their soil. And people have figured out all kinds of clever and useful ways to do that. But it means shaking up practices, and that's going to require uh, more than kind of voluntary effort. If we're going to do it in time, it's going to take real push by people to break the hold of these guys. And, and, and you know, in the same way that uh, sun and wind provide at least some chance for more localized control of energy, uh, we need a very different paradigm for our control of our food system. Um, I mean, the, the the good news is that there, there are some uh, indications that, that that's, you know, the, the other countries have kind of understood. So, for example, in Brazil, there's, uh, you know, moves to have local purchasing of, of agroecological food come from uh, local areas that go to schools. And, and so by creating these political alliances between soil and farmers and schools, uh, you, you get to break some of the unhealthy political alliances that uh, agribusiness has, has long thrived on. Um, but I, I wonder whether we're still trapped by ideas that you know the, the way to fix this the, the problem around the food system is through individual change. And my, my data point for that is the number of questions y'all have got around meat. Uh, so m maybe I can uh, turn now to, to ask you a, a sort of synthesized question uh, from uh, a number of the attendees today who are concerned about uh, the way that, uh, you know, the, 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 the meat industry in particular is a vast emitter of greenhouse gases uh, and are wondering, well, so is the future vegan? Is it that we just have to uh, go and uh, just just eat synthetic meat? And is that not just to recapitulate certain kinds of racial capitalism? Um, so I, I, I'll, I'll throw it to either of you who, who, who wants to step up first. Well, I can jump in uh, and then uh, feel, free, feel free to also. I mean, I think what, what, what happens often, I find, when we talk about food even more so than than you know more so than than energy shifts for instance is is food of course it is so personal and so intimate we we consume it daily uh, multiple times a day if we're lucky uh, so that when you start talking about foods often people think oh so so you're talking about what what did I eat for breakfast and should I interrogate that and so I think what we need to be sure to do is not to say no or you know not to say yeah you might want to ask some questions about what your own diet is but to say that food isn't just this individual act that we take. 
food is part of um, the food system is a global a global system increasingly controlled by just a handful of corporations that have these direct ties often to the fossil fuel industry and that in order to have real choice as an individual uh, about what food we're consuming we have to take on those corporate uh, institutions we have to make the kind of political uh, uh, changes that Bill and I have already been talking about. So, for instance, uh, today I was just looking at the latest statistics from uh, the IPES food uh, report, Raj, I know you were involved in. It was called Too Big to Feed, and it was talking about this over the past 30, 40 years, this incredible concentration within the food industry, and for instance, in pesticides. Now there are just uh, three companies that control 70% of the market for pesticides. So. If we tell people, you know, the best food for your body and for the planet and for climate is food that hasn't been raised with pesticides, when this, the pesticide industry, industry has so much influence over where research dollars go, over whether farmers are supported to transition to get off pesticides, over, uh, you know, what is purchased by uh, uh, government procurement, uh, that doesn't really afford us the real choice in the marketplace to choose, for instance, pesticide-free food. And one could make the same argument about meat production. So in the US, north of 95% of the meat that we will find in the grocery store comes from industrial operations. And so while a lot of folks I know uh, have been really trying to understand and research the science of, is it possible to raise animals in ways that actually doesn't have as big of a climate toll, that actually is more in concert with ecological practices. And that science is unfolding and there are definitely models out there the reality is, for most of us walking into the grocery store, we do not have access to that uh, to that non-industrial meat product. And so, um, and so again, I think yes, there is a need to be looking at what our individual diets are. But as as Bill said, you know, this isn't about we're not going to be able to make the change at scale with the speed we need with just taking individual action. We really need to be looking at these systems and systems of power and looking at how do we challenge those systems. I think that's absolutely right. Um, it's it's not that it's not, it's not as Anna says that you know people shouldn't be thinking about what they eat, and and they should, and even thinking about what other people eat. I, I've been working a bunch lately with these guys who are putting together this uh, put together this I thought quite brilliant campaign from a, they're from something called the Reducitarian Foundation, and their thesis is. There's a lot of people who are probably going to keep eating meat, but if you eat half as much as you used to, that's not hard. It's better for you. You can maybe able to make the numbers add up much more quickly than just hectoring people uh, about uh, veganism. Um, but none of it multiplies. It's all additive, and that we don't have time for that. So, uh, another way of saying this is, the most important thing an individual can do at this point is be a little less of an individual and join together with others in movements big enough to make fundamental political and economic shifts here. And if we make those, then we have a chance. And if we don't, then we're you know, going to be eating our impossible burgers on a broken planet. So, I mean, those are the, those are the two options. And um, can I just jump in real quick, Raj? Because I, I, I did spend a good deal of last year working with a recipe developer on recipes for a book that has recipes in it that's very much talking about how do you cook a plant-centered and planet-centered diet. 
And I will say, you know, there is also, going back to the beginning of our conversation about anxiety, you know, there is a great sense of peace and calm that I got to experience cooking nourishing plant-centered food for myself and my kids as I was recipe testing this, this food and this is what I feed my family. And to also feel like that is part of what we all need to be doing is to, <laughs> to, to be nourishing ourselves, to give ourselves the energy to stay in this fight and to let ourselves feel good about that. I mean, it, it feels really good. My, my old gas stove died and I had to get a new stove and I, I got an induction stove. Well, it feels really nice to have a $10 electric bill and have my house powered by my solar panels and cook my plant-centered food on my induction stove. Do I think that is going to get us to you know, solve this global crisis? 100% not. Does it feel really good on a daily basis? Yes. Can I make a little quick argument, by the way, just for induction stoves as a really good tool for getting people to be able to turn off the gas line to their house? We don't need, I mean, community after community is now banning new gas hookups for new construction, but we got to also get them out of those of us who already have homes. An air source heat pump is a better way to heat your house and cool it and an induction cook stove is a much better way to cook food. If you like to cook, try one out sometime. You can actually get them for about 40 bucks, a cooktop, um, induction cooktop, and they're unbelievable. You boil water in next to no time. I don't know why, I mean, it's like, uh, uh, this is one technology that's a, a vast and not even the tiniest bit of sacrifice. Um, and thank you, Bill, for that. So, Anna, what was the name of the book that you were working on again? Diet for a Small Planet. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, but, but uh, and I'm, I'm uh, excited also just to get the gas out of our homes because of the, the just the, the, the toxins and the asthma that's associated with, with using it. I'm, 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 I'm pleased that we're, we're moving towards uh, that sort of domestic arrangement. But let's let's talk about domestic and local because uh, th there is an overlap here between uh, energy and food uh that th there is a keening for local food and local energy grids uh, and i'm wondering if uh you know, well, first of all what, what do you think about the movements towards local food and local energy um but also how at the same time as doing that we we think about our obligations uh, and our responsibilities for things like reparations for the damage that we have caused so far. I mean, we, we can just retreat into our local food systems and you know say hi to our farmer at the farmer's market and pretend that everything's fine now. But, uh, and even think, look, this is a system. This isn't individual. This is us together at the farmer's market, all these white people. Uh, but then uh, we can also, I mean, I, mean, I think it is important to, to recognize that the foods, you know, that the, the merely localizing a system doesn't absolve it of its long past. And I, I'm, I'm wondering if y'all might be able to, to talk about the sort of localization of food and energy and uh, the, the difficulties that come with uh, the, the amnesia that that might provoke. Uh, you want me to give go it a try? Yeah, go for it, Bill. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Look, there's no reason not to try and localize your food supply because it tastes better and it's more fun. People go to the farmer's market and have on average 10 times as many conversations per visit as they do at the supermarket. So that's good. It's a wonderful way to build community. It obviously makes more sense to support small local farmers, not truck things all over the world. And the stuff that you eat actually tastes a, a lot like food, um, which is a you know big improvement over a lot of what you eat otherwise. That doesn't mean that it's uh, you know that 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 you therefore get to rest 
you know, on your um, carrot tops. Uh, instead, um, it's just, that's just a, a good way to fortify yourself for the actual fight here, which is about, as you say, these much larger questions. Um, and in all of these cases, you know, uh, I mean, none of us, no American is ever going to pay back their carbon debt to the rest of the world. I mean, that's just a mathematical impossibility at this point, but we've got to try. Uh, the, 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 the iron law of climate change is the less you did to cause it, the sooner and the harder you get hit. So right now in Madagascar, they've got a famine because it doesn't rain. It hasn't rained for a long time. Um, you know, um, um, right now across much of the Horn of Africa, because it got very hot and very dry, uh, they had the biggest outbreak of grasshoppers and locusts that people have seen for maybe ever. And, and you know, the, I mean, these, these swarms of grasshoppers decimate, you know, state-sized uh, uh, chunks of farmland in the course of a week. Um, um, so we have an extraordinary obligation if you really want to see it up close and really want to feel kind of what it means, last year was the biggest hurricane season in Atlantic history. The last two storms went ashore in Guatemala, mostly in Honduras, and did unbelievable damage. We think damage equivalent to about 40% of Honduras's GOP. Farmers there can no longer, there's no bridge or road to get their stuff to market even if their field isn't under a foot of sand, and a lot of them are now. Um, so what are they doing? They're coming to the southern border of the US. I can't tell you what their legal status is going to be when they get here, but I can tell you their moral status. The 4% of us who are Americans produced more than a quarter of the carbon that's in the atmosphere. If there's a flood someplace and a 1,000 people die in some record rainfall, well, 250 of them are on us. So, you know. That's the moral math that we're working with here. Yeah, and I, I guess I would add to, uh, as a way in to uh, explore that question, Raj, is thinking about, you know, how, you know, to me, the, the, the benefit to organizing locally is the extent to which it can scale up and up and up, because as, as Bill has said, as we've said this whole time, the levers we need to pull have to be so big that we cannot, we don't have the time for every single locality around the country to make the kinds of shifts that we need to see happen. At the same time, what we have found is uh, cities and counties can be powerful places to beta test policy change and to get policy wins that then you can scale up to the state, to the national. So for instance, uh, a policy that uh, colleagues of mine have been working on since 2012 is called the Good Food Purchasing Program. It was first started in the Los Angeles um, Unified School District. And the idea is to use the procurement power of schools around food to actually shift those dollars to food purchases that reflect a set of values, including the environment, also animal welfare, also worker well-being, also health, also local economies, not just the cheapest food. And so what LA Unified did when they developed that program was to start really shifting that supply chain for that one district. Well, now that program is across 12 different districts across the country and growing and, and tapping into potentially moving on the order of magnitude of a billion dollars worth of food. Now, is all of that going to this supply chain that would be most aligned with climate? Not yet, but it is a powerful mechanism. And so I would just kind of remind people that 
you know, yes, there is the power in going to support our local food sheds and supporting farmers local to you who you want to invest in. And there is power in organizing locally to have these models that can then scale up. So, uh, so it's, it's, again, it's not either or, I would say. With all of that in mind, um, I, I, I do want to just press on you know, the, the, the perception that the food movement and the climate movement are, you know, sort of white middle class uh, uh, institutions. Um, and uh, and uh, when now I know that that's not true, but uh, I, I I wonder if there's a, if, if y'all can point here in the United States to sort of leadership that uh, you found particularly inspirational in thinking about the the, the sort of the fusion of climate and. Uh, food, you know, of you know, driven by BIPOC communities, of working class white communities, uh, in a way that confounds the, the the easy and facile narratives that that uh, sometimes climate change activists and food activists are dismissed with. I was just out in Minnesota, uh, helping the folks fighting against Line Three, this absurd tar sands pipeline down through Minnesota, and right there at the forefront of the fight was my old friend Winona Leduc. Uh, wonderful in, indigenous activist, and she was staking her claim against this pipeline on the fact that it was wrecking the wild rice cultivation or wild rice harvest uh, 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 across those beautiful wetlands along the headwaters of the Mississippi. Uh, it's a perfect example of this sort of synthesis of food activism, climate activism, uh, indigenous sovereignty activism. Um, um, just people standing up and saying, no more of this. Yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I've gotten this question before, Raj, and talking to media about food issues, and I, I've said, you know, honestly, <laughs> the food movement I know is not rich, white, elite people who are obsessed with the temperature of their goat cheese. You know, the food foodies that I know, the food movement folks that I know are, you know, incredible leaders like Winona LaDuke, Raj, I think about your co-author of your incredible book, Inflamed, that all of you should read, Rupa Maria, Dr. Rupa Maria, who has been really involved locally here in the San Francisco Bay Area in a rematriation project of, of actually acquiring land and rematriating it to the indigenous peoples for whom this is their home. I think about leaders like the National Black Food Justice Alliance that have been at the forefront of talking about black land loss and the systemic racism within the USDA against black farmers. Uh, I think about groups like the Food Chain Workers Alliance. It's just a little over 10 years old now, but an incredible alliance giving voice to food workers from the farm workers all the way to restaurant workers and uniting them in a shared voice. I mean, we could go on and on and on. And I know Raj, you know, you know so many of these people as well. And so I think a lot of it is there is this false perception and a false narrative about uh, who uh, are the, the, the real forces and, and voices behind the kinds of food systems change that we need to have uh, uh, both climate stability and food justice. And uh, it's, it's you know, for me, a huge source of, of inspiration and hope. Um, so. Well, and, and we're coming to that stage uh, of the talk where uh, we have to deliver on our promises of uh, inspiration and hope and ways of managing climate anxiety. And so uh, th th there was a, uh, we, ha we have a, a question from an anonymous attendee who uh, is in their 20s and wants to know how to hold the anxiety in one's body at the same time as making these kinds of transformations of, of, of and, and also just enjoying life. And I think this is, 
This is important because, uh, I mean, I, 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 burnout is a thing. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, frankly, how both of you are so able to, to be everywhere doing everything and reading and engaging and supporting and lifting up and not keeling over from exhaustion. Uh, so how is it that, that y'all are able to both enjoy and hold these anxieties? And uh, uh, you know, perhaps you, if, if you might be able to offer a way out of our, uh, our you know, the, the, the problem of anxiety and climate in a way that, that, that can send us off, uh, I think we'd all be very grateful. Well, let me tell you, you know, one of the ways I think Anna does it and beautifully which is uh, cook and eat delicious food. Um, look, you know, one of the things that happens when we start talking about food is everybody gets, you know, worried and 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 so on that they're, you know, I mean, going to be somehow deprived or whatever. Um, one of the great things about starting to think about food and about exploring how other people in other parts of the world eat and so on is that you're, um, um, you get to have delicious. You get to pause you know, a couple of times a day for delicious restorative meal. Um, and you get to spend an hour making it maybe, um, which is pretty wonderful too. Um, you got to take care of yourself and, and, and all of that. That said, let me just say, anxiety is appropriate because we're in the worst cul-de-sac that our species has yet wandered into. There's no way around it. The only real way to manage it is by uh, involving yourself in this fight in a way that makes you feel uh, as if you're making a, a serious difference. And if you do that, then I guarantee that you will feel at least a little better about all this. Uh, and it'll give you, um, you know, I mean, it will give you the, the feeling that you, um, that, that humans should have when they're rising to the occasion that history presents them, and this is ours. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, I, you know, so to the you anonymous uh, question asker and anybody else who, who resonated with that question, you know, to be honest, I feel like I have good days and bad days. And, and on good, I think like all of us, and on good days, I feel like I am able to tap into this kind of vein of energy where I feel like having hope and, and having anxiety not be my forefront emotion is a form of activism. You know, look, if ExxonMobil <laughs> and Dow DuPont and, you know, Kim China Syngenta, they're going to uh, poison farmers and farm workers, they're going to destroy our climate, and they're also going to put me in a bad mood. <laughs> you know, there is this way that it is part of our calling to say, no, we're not going, this is the only life we can live. You know, I'm only going to be a mother to these kids once. You know, you're only going to be a college student once. The part of this moment is to say they're not also going to steal our joy. They're not also going to take away, you know, story time with the kids because I'm in an anxiety ball on the bed, you know. So to give you an example, in about three minutes when this is over, I will be logging off and uh, jumping on my bicycle with my older daughter and taking her to her first rock concert outdoors, masked, vaccinated, COVID safe. But, you know, that's part of it. And so it's, uh, there is this, this part of me that, uh, again, on a good day can really tap into this energy and really feel like part of tapping into that joy, tapping into life and love and fun is a way of saying, screw you, 
the fossil fuel companies and screw you to the food companies that are poisoning our planet and poisoning our plates and embracing you know this one life that we have to live and when you get a win celebrate the hell out of it uh, you know what the most advanced part of our food system is our uh, remarkable network of local craft breweries across America and given Harvard's divestment this afternoon, I plan on uh, uh, engaging with that part of our <laughs> food system tonight uh, in hefty celebration. So many thanks to both you guys for all the work that you do. That was Bill McKibben, Anna LaPay, and Raj Patel talking about the future of climate and food. Thanks again to the Kent Memorial Library for hosting this talk. Bill McKibben said, the most important thing an individual can do at this point is to be a little less of an individual, join together with others in movements big enough to make fundamental political and economic shifts. If you're feeling anxious about the climate, why not take Bill's advice and connect to your local climate justice movement? Check out at PDX Food Show on Instagram and Facebook for ways to get involved. If you'd like to hear this conversation again, visit kboo.org slash foodshow, or you can find The Food Show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. KBOO Portland 90.7 FM also heard at translator K220HR Hood River at 91.9 FM and translator K282B